Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Jay Khan, Vice President of Advancement and Foundation President at Georgia State University. Welcome, Jay. Hey, thanks, Brent. Happy to be here. Well, our paths have crossed in passing two ships sort of through the night uh, over the last several years, and I've been really looking forward to getting to know you personally and also helping shine a light on the pretty amazing stuff that's been happening at Georgia State, which I imagine some of our audience is familiar with, but if you're not, it's truly one of the most exciting growth stories in higher ed during a time when, candidly, higher ed has been challenged. And so uh, hopefully, Jay will share at least a couple of the secrets that he's observed uh, in in his role uh, as it relates to both advancement and then the broader uh, work that is happening at Georgia State. But before we do that, we need to understand who we're talking to, where he's coming from. And Jay, as I think you know, I've loved better understanding the higher education journey of our guests. And I don't know uh, where you grew up or where you went to high school, but why don't you tell me about junior year of high school? Who was that Jay? uh, And ultimately what led him to Elon University? Sure. Um, Probably a very different person than than this Jay, um, hopefully in a good way, but um, grew up outside of Boston, went to um, uh, St. John Shrewsbury, um, you know, junior year high school Jay, um, thought he had a plan, but probably didn't really um, want to play lacrosse in college, did the the college tours and everything, ended up uh, doing a tour to Elon, uh, no varsity lacrosse program, but you know, fell in love with the school, um, and it ended up being the only school I applied to early, early decision, early action. Um, and, you know, found out, uh, sort of November of, uh, my senior year, that's where I was going to go. I love it. So two things. One last night, my two oldest boys went to their first lacrosse practice ever. So any advice as a brand newly minted lax dad, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I coached the high school team when I was at Purdue and West Lafayette, and it's a much different game, uh, at least at the, the middle school and high school levels than the ones I played, probably a lot safer uh, and the equipment's a lot better. So, um, you know, if they're right-handed, I would say work on the left hand early. That's fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, timeless advice in, in many different sports for sure. Uh, and so what was it about that visit to Elon where, you know, was it um, the physical campus? Was there something about the way people treated you? Was there one person who just sort of hooked you? We oftentimes hear about those sort of pivotal moments where, you know, one person says the right thing at the right time and, and everything clicks. What was it for you? Uh, it was a couple of things. It's, it's a beautiful campus. Um, I had just come from a visit at a large public in the state and remember walking into one of those big lecture halls and just, oh my God, 300 people in one class. It's, you know, that's crazy. And then, you know, that afternoon I met Elon and they're talking about, you know, 14 to one student to faculty ratio, that really personal attention. It was something that I really felt like I probably needed and would appreciate. Uh, had a great tour guide um, that really sold it for me, which is, you know, interesting because I it was a tour guide for four years at Elon and actually worked in the admissions office after I graduated for a, a short period of time. And so I really believe that that sort of admissions process can really um, make a difference for students. And then they had a, a pretty strong sports management program. And at the time, that's what I thought I wanted to do. So Love it. And so you move from just outside of Worcester, Massachusetts, to Elon, North Carolina, probably not a ton of kids from the Worcester area 
at Elon that year. Uh, easy transition, challenging transition. Did you have the Boston accent at the time and uh, cover it or not really? I and mean, what was the story there? <laughs> yeah, I, I had a, um, a Boston accent for sure. Um, probably a little stronger after a couple beverages, but um, <laughs> you know, you can only get called the Yankee so many times before you learn to pronounce your R's. So, um, but it, you know, the, the South is certainly a different place. Elon is is interesting. You know, they actually bring quite a few students from. New England, New York, New Jersey, Ohio. So it's it an interesting sort of uh, mishmash of students from all across the country. Love it. And so when you uh, reflect on the time there, uh, you had a point of view around sports management. Obviously, uh, you've pivoted, although I have no doubt there's plenty of intersection with athletics uh, throughout your career and to this day. Um, but what was your perspective as you uh, advanced through the program um, and started to think about what the the first professional step might be and or uh, continuing education. Yeah, so I, I was really interested in in college and pro athletics, either sort of from an operations or a marketing ticket perspective. Uh, as an undergrad, I worked in the athletics department at Elon, um, did some operations work, which, you know, was interesting, um, pretty low level, right? Setting up chairs, you know, running scorecards, some of those things. But um, I spent one summer working for the Burlington Royals, which is, uh, they're now the Burlington Sock Puppets, I believe, but um, to, it was, you know, rookie league team um, doing everything from, um, you know, rolling the tarp when it started to rain to cold calling for ticket sales um, and you can only spend so much time on a coach bus, um, making very little money before you start to question whether that's the, the right path for you. Um, loved it. We had a lot of fun, but just sort of realized that wasn't necessarily the path that I wanted to take. I would encourage everyone listening to Google Burlington Sock Puppets right <laughs> now and just check out the merch that they are offering, because that is truly a distinct and tremendous logo. I mean, I've seen a lot of logos, but wow, two socks dressed yep. as baseball players is next level. Uh, you've mentioned a couple of times ticket sales, which I want to come back to, because I do think it's one of those pockets of the part fundraising, you know, part revenue generation uh, world of higher education that is uh, incredibly high velocity uh, and also highly interest-based, which uh, are two areas that we that we think a lot about. But uh, you got a little tired of the coach bus and probably some stale sandwiches along the way. And uh, what, uh, what was next? Um, so from there, I you know, graduated a semester early, uh, worked in the admissions office for about four months at Elon while I was trying to figure out what it was I wanted to do. Um, ended up getting on with a real estate company, uh, moved to Winston-Salem. We were um, essentially taking low occupancy apartment complexes and, you know, either renovating or turning them into Section 8 housing, um, which was interesting. Um, but again, one of those things were probably not necessarily what I want to do long term. Um, this was in 2009, obviously not the best year to be in real estate. And so um, did that for a little over a year and, and kind of said, you know, I'm really miss working in higher ed, love that experience at admissions. Don't know if admissions is necessarily what I'm interested in doing. My my girlfriend at the time, now wife, um, was going back to school at Ohio State. And so I said, you know, probably a good time to try to make a move and, and figure out what's next. And so um, started looking at higher ed, uh, 
you know, student affairs programs, um, got in at Bowling Green and, um, you know, moved up there and uh, did that two-year program. Uh, lived in a residence hall at Ohio Northern. Um, super interesting uh, experience. Probably within a year, maybe a lot quicker than that, I realized, I don't know if student affairs is necessarily the right fit. I really like higher ed. Um, don't know how many more 2 a.m. phone calls I can take in the residence hall. Um, was working in Greek life at Ohio Northern again, just, you know, really felt like I was making an impact, but wasn't necessarily something I could see myself doing super long-term. And um, went to my advisor, told him I was thinking about leaving the program. And, and he kind of says like, well, don't leave. You're already more than halfway done. Let me introduce you to somebody um, that works in advancement at Bowling Green, who's an alum of the program. I think that might be something you're interested in. Um, so probably my first mentor in, in advancement was Shannon Spencer, who's now actually the VP at Ohio Northern, um, but at the time was the director of annual giving at Bowling Green. And she gave me a shot um, for about a year and a half um, and really got me exposed to sort of a lot of things in development. I don't think we've had many guests who've come from the student affairs world. I do love asking our guests, especially in the advancement context, hey, what are some of your memorable experiences, memorable trips, big gifts? I'm not sure I want to ask what your most memorable experiences were from student affairs. Yeah, I mean, it's it's about what you would expect, right? I, But I, I think it's interesting because there's a lot of transferables, I think, from student affairs to development, right? In a lot of ways, it's a psychology or counseling degree in many aspects, right? There's this idea that you learn really early in your student affairs curriculum, you know, Arthur Chickering challenge and support, right? And I mean, I feel like I apply that when I'm working with the gift officers, when I'm working with donors, right? Helping them really think critically about what it is they're trying to accomplish and, you know, how do you sort of help them get out of their comfort zone a little bit to, to get to that goal? So what's an example of challenge and support, both in the student affairs context, but maybe in the major gift context as well? Because I, I actually haven't really heard that expression before, but, I, but I'd like to learn more. Sure. So it's just the concept of, right, you want to create this supportive environment for your students or whoever you're working with, but also, you know, push them a little bit. So if a student comes to you and says, well, I'm not sure that this class is for me, you know, saying like, well, okay, it might not be for you, but like, let's really dig into it. Is it you don't enjoy the coursework or you're not getting along with your teacher? Is maybe some of that responsibility on you and less so on the faculty member? You know, let's really talk through it and, and get to the core of, of where your issue is and how you can succeed. And, you know, it's, it's the same when you're coaching gift officers or working with donors on, you know, what their philanthropic goals are. Got it. And uh, when you think about the objectives of student affairs, I mean, the objectives of major gifts, for example, pretty clear, uh, certainly relative to other parts of the education ecosystem. Did you have student retention metrics or student happiness metrics? Or have you seen, I mean, obviously, uh, when you think about the revenue levers that can be pulled in higher ed, it's enrollment, tuition dollars, it's retaining students, and then it's fundraising. I'm not sure if in that role you would have had exposure to all of that, but what are kind of the, the big KPIs or metrics that maybe might be linked to student affairs just for folks who don't have as much familiarity. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to consider myself very much a novice in the world of student affairs. I, I, you know, did the work as a GA and have the two-year degree, but there's folks that have dedicated their whole lives to that and, and really eat and breathe in. And I don't 
don't necessarily want to venture into their world Fair. too much, but I will say, you know, it's been really interesting here at Georgia State, um, right? Our student success narrative is one that's gotten a lot of national attention. And I'm really proud of the work that that team does here because I think they look at it in a really unique way, right? It's an completely data-driven approach. You know, we've got these AI-enabled chatbots, you know, to the point where, you know, we automatically intervene on student with students based on, you know, data points. And before they even have to ask for help, we're doing things like automatically transferring $500 into their account because we see the levers that are happening that they're going to need assistance, right? And, you know, it's the reason that our students that typically would be considered underrepresented minorities graduate at or above the same rate as, as our white, you know, middle income students. Love it. Love it. Let's definitely come back to that. As you made the transition to Bowling State, uh, you studied sports management. You did a work around the athletic space. You did the student affairs work. Tell me about the first week or two, you know, first month in the advanced world. How much familiarity or exposure did you have to advancement? I remember when I got started in the company, just all the buzzwords, the lingo, the sidebuns, the buns, case, this acronym, that acronym. I mean, what was that early? Uh, I guess, transition into the world of advancement like? Yeah, I mean, I had, I had no clue. Um, I just, I remember, um, I didn't have an office per se. I sort of was just stationed at a table outside of Shannon's office. And I remember sitting in on the call center that, you know, the first night I did just like, oh my God, there's so much happening here. Um, to your point, I don't know what any of this stuff means. You know, I just had a, a notepad and came back to Shannon the next day with a bunch of questions. And, um, you know, I, I can't, can't be thankful enough how much time she spent getting me up to speed, matching me up with, you know, different people across the organization, um, you know, got to shadow some major gift officers, got to go on some visits, um, got to do renewal calls on the phone for, you know, people that hadn't renewed their leadership annual gift, um, ran the faculty staff campaign, just, you know, a bunch of wow. sort of entry-level annual giving things that, you know, didn't really realize it, but got me experience on the phone, got me experience in a meeting, got me experience working with internal constituents, um, you know, a really good sort of foundational education. How much of that do you think was unique to you specifically joining the team? Or is that something that Shannon just approached systematically with all new hires? Because honestly, one of the areas of concern that I hear quite frequently is that the onboarding process and advancement can be quite inconsistent or you show up, you're thrown into it and expected to figure out without ever getting that cross section of work, the, you know, multiple perspectives that it sounds like, I mean, even getting to shadow a major gift officer, think about how few advancement professionals have ever really gotten to do that unless they are the major gift officer. And so is that unique to Shannon or, um, unique yeah. to you or kind of what's, and then also kind of what's your philosophy, uh, obviously having benefited from that sort of mentorship. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think, you know, I think I probably had three really strong mentors in, in advancement. And I would say that the three things that all, the thing that all three of those folks have in common is they are completely selfless with their time and energy. And that's something that I've really tried to echo, um, you know, anytime someone reaches out to me, I, you know, I do everything I can to say yes and give them that time because I just know I wouldn't have any, any of the things that I have now if it weren't for those folks. Um, as it relates to onboarding, uh, this could be its own separate podcast because it's a big, a big sort of sticking point for me. I, I, 
it's always hilarious to me to go to like a case conference or one of those things and everyone you know is lamenting oh you know the average tenure of this gift officer or i can't keep people and it, it's comical to me because you know we take someone and you know at an institution like georgia state the size of our team odds are they're probably one of the only if the only person in their unit that's a frontline fundraiser we stick them over there with nobody else that's doing the same job as them we don't give them any great training we give them a password to the system and say, hey, good luck, here are your metrics. And then we're all surprised when they leave in 24 months. And um, you know, my philosophy is if you're not going to spend the time to hire that person and make them successful and really train them to do the things that you think they need to do to be successful and also give them metrics where you know, the expectations and the opportunity for success are really closely aligned, you're never going to retain anyone. And I, you know, I remember being at a, a reher conference, this is probably seven, eight years ago at this point. And Andy, you know, put up some data about how long it takes a gift officer to reach maximum productivity and the best ones, you know, three years in, but most of them it's five to seven years, you know, the opportunity cost for not onboarding and training someone effectively is, is huge. Yeah. I mean, look, it's no different than, working hard to retain students, instrumenting things, identifying the uh, signals, triggering intervention in an automated way. Uh, Obviously, Georgia State is leading the charge there. What is the employee experience equivalent? And when you think about acquiring a donor, stewarding a donor, renewing a donor, growing the gift, there's a donor life cycle. And you think about the student life cycle from enrollment through graduation, and then there's the employee life cycle, which is I post the job, I recruit you, you join, nobody shows up the first day saying, I hope in 18 months I quit and move on to my next thing. I mean, very few people would have that perspective. And so where is it along the journey where we actually have levers we could pull that would lead to stronger staff retention the same way that that $500 deposit might be the make or break difference for the student? Yeah, I, I think there's opportunities across the whole way, right? Now, I joined Georgia State in the middle of COVID, so it was a little bit of a wonky time, but I had a tremendously difficult time with the paperwork and getting things processed, and I actually didn't get paid on schedule for my first paycheck, and, you know, mistakes happen. It is what it is, but, you know, and I don't have an ego in it, but if that's what the experience I'm having, what's a assistant director of development? getting. Um, and so, you know, sort of from day one, I said, let's inventory all the processes for just hiring, right? The, the X's and O's of this. And, and we made some changes. And I think it's, it's vastly improved. Um, I've got a great AVP who's got a working group um, across our organization that's working on onboarding plans. So every employee coming in with a 30, 60, 90 day plan, um, right? At bare minimum, um, how are we getting them on board the first three months? Um, you know, I think there's a tremendous opportunity here and in a lot of places I've been um, for job pathing, right? And so that's what we're working on with our HR team now, which is especially if you're a gift officer, right? If you come in as an assistant director of development, here are the expectations. And if you do these things, you know, you will become a DOD within two years and this is what your salary will be, right? Let's put it on the table. Here's where we expect you to get um, both from a numbers and a competency standpoint. And, you know, one of the things that you asked on the pre-questionnaire was, you know, if you could wave your magic wand, I, I think the metrics is a, is a big part of sort of talent development and retention. Um, you know, 
I don't want it to be a punitive tool. It should be something that enables us to have a coaching conversation. Um, you know, we got rid of our visit metric and a lot of other things that I think are, you know, are, are a little archaic. And we also have a set of nine core competencies that we've integrated into that. So um, we came up with those collaboratively, right? Talking about, you know, what are our spouse values? How does that look in action? And, you know, how do we integrate that into metrics? And I think it's been really impactful for our team. I love that. Um, and it's interesting when you talk about the onboarding experience, we've actually recently started, uh, we've used this tool, but they've got a feature around onboarding where it's essentially like employee NPS around the onboarding experience, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how would you rate your onboarding thus far at the 30, 60, 90? And as a point of reference in, in 2017, which was the first time we asked that question, we had a 6.7 as an organization, which is not great on the, on the one to 10 scale. I mean, not horrible, but not great. Um, and I now have the ability every single month as we onboard people to see how that metric um, moves. And, uh, and we've been operating in the eights throughout uh, uh, 2021. And then in the last uh, most recent survey, we're actually um, at a 10 out of 10 for the first time ever. And so it's a super simple survey. It's basically the one to 10 scale, but then also an opportunity for some free text commentary so that they can provide feedback about what was unclear. You know, hey, I didn't really understand uh, you know, I, I got invited to email and Slack and all these things, but nobody really walked me through how to use them. And so uh, it's just been a really good way to sort of instrument and, and get a handle on um, in general, how are we doing? But then within specific lanes, what are the friction areas? And even by team, you know, are certain managers doing a better job uh, effectively onboarding their staff? And so I think that's an example where we can, we can, sometimes probably overthink the metrics. I mean, this is about as simple as it gets, yet we were never doing it. I imagine, you know, a lot of other organizations still aren't uh, really looking at that employee onboarding experience in the same way. Yeah. Well, I, from the outside looking in, I think one of the things that seems like you all do really well is create this culture of, you know, everyone is part of this family, this one company, regardless of, of what your individual function is. And that's something that we've talked about internally here. You know, if you're, in gift processing, or if you're, you know, a gift officer who's out in your college, you know, do you feel like you're a member of this advancement organization? Do you understand how the work that you're doing, you know, ultimately rolls up and drives that big number? And I think that's something that's really important for a successful shop. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to recognize the gift officer that closes the big gift. How do you recognize the gift pro you know, what's the equivalent outperformance in gift processing or the equivalent outperformance, you know, going above and beyond in research, for example. And it might be, frankly, it's just maybe more subjective. You know, it could be about attitude or work ethic or, you know, positivity, enthusiasm, uh, or something more, you know, tactical. But we, in any organization, we tend to celebrate the revenue. Uh, and, and how do you think about spreading recognition throughout, throughout the org? Uh, and I, that's where we use the competencies pretty heavily, right? I, you know, for example, we've got a competency for technical fundraising excellence. And, you know, at first glance, maybe that feels like it only fits with a major gift officer. But, you know, if the person that's writing the gift agreement, you know, can't reconcile what the donor wants and get that, you know, adequately portrayed in, in the language, you know, 
that donor is going to have a bad experience, right? And yeah. so everyone touches it in, in, in their own way, but everyone needs to have some buy-in in, into that process. Love it. So you're working under Shannon at uh, Bowling Green, your Bowling Green State University. You're um, really drinking from the fire hose that is, you know, the early period in advancement. Were there any moments along the way in that first job where you started to think, wow, like I love this, or I I could really see myself like sports management wasn't really it. Student affairs wasn't really it. This might be it. Um, And maybe that aha didn't happen just yet, but I, but I'm kind of curious as you then transitioned to Ohio university, um, what your outlook was on advancement as a career path. Yeah, you know, I think at at Bowling Green, and when I was working at Bowling Green, I was still also working at Ohio Northern. So, I mean, I was doing sort of double duty and um, it was a lot, right? And I I remember I would do, when I would get to show up at Bowling Green, regardless of how tired I was from working the other job and being in grad school, I was always super excited. So I think that is one of those things for me, but getting to make the the sort of renewal calls and, you know, getting someone to commit to a thousand dollar gift, right. Um, after getting hung up on, you know, five, six, seven, 10 times in a row, um, there's no better feeling, right. Um, there's no better feeling. And, you know, you later learn there's no better feeling than closing a great major gift and some of these other right. things. And so for me, I was like, that's a, that's a great feeling. I want to chase that. Um, and, you know, I remember having a conversation with Shannon, right. About, I think annual giving is great, but I, you know, I want to be a major gift officer and, you know, what's that look like? How do I get there? Um, right. And, and she knew someone in Ohio, sent my, you know, name and resume along, um, got an interview to be a leadership annual gift officer, um, there. And right. So again, it's this, this connection, um, of someone that's giving sort of freely of their, their network and time to help you out and, you know, got me in a great place at OU. But also let you go. I mean, it's, it's, it had to be hard for Shannon to sort of say, sure, I'll go out of my way to, you know, in a sector where retention is an issue and, you know, finding, uh, you know, a, a strong up and comer is hard. I'm sure it wasn't easy for her to sort of let you fly out of the nest there, but, um, but, but it, it obviously was pivotal that you had that opportunity. Oh, for, I mean, for sure. And um, again, something that I try to do for people, right. It's, it's obvious to us as managers. I'm sure you, you see the same thing, right. When you just know you don't have that next thing for someone, whether it's a budget issue or, you know, they're just in a terminal role and it's, it's really painful in a lot of ways, but if it's, you know, that person's usually giving you a lot. Right. And I always try to appreciate that. And, um, I'll never fault someone for making the best decision for them or their family. I've, I've said that countless times to people. No doubt. I'd be lying though. If I said, I, I let folks go easy. I mean, I'm always like racking my brain for maybe I should invent some new role or what if we did this instead? I just can't help it. Even though I know that generally once somebody's at the point of having that conversation, it's sort of the right thing to do just to support people. But I, I struggle with it for sure. Um, when, when you got to uh, Ohio U, um, just give me a sense of that progression. It looks like you had an opportunity pretty much every year to get promoted, um, which, which had to feel pretty good, kind of constant um, uh, opportunity to, uh, to grow and advance, um, still relatively early in your career. What was the leadership dynamic there? You know, was there a Shannon equivalent for you or um, 
you know, how did you, how, how did you build such momentum there? Yeah, so it was OU's a really interesting place. Um, again, pretty quickly found uh, a mentor in, in my AVP, uh, Jared Blackburn, who's now the uh, chief of staff for the president at Ohio State. Um, you know, those leadership annual giving roles are, are kind of tough, right? You sort of have this really long list of people that you're supposed to call on and not a lot of direction. And um, I remember, so I was doing my MBA um, at OU at the time too. My wife was still in grad school. It just was like, well, it's free. I might as well, you know, keep learning. Um, and, you know, was basically told you can call whoever you want as long as they're not assigned. I'm like, okay, well, that's like 400,000 people. You know, how do I figure it out? And, um, you know, we weren't, we didn't have reher yet or any of this other stuff. And I remember we were learning linear regression and my statistics class, maybe it was like, well, you know, this is probably something I can use here. And so I built, um, so I don't know if you know, Peter Wiley, um, I was reading yep. his book and I was like, right, I can do one of these for, for OU. Right. So I just build a, you know, probably any advancement services person would look at it and think it's like two plus two. But for me, it was sort of life-changing at the time. Gave me a really simple scoring system. And, you know, I just went at it, um, had a really successful sort of first six to nine months. And um, Jar actually came up to my office one day and was like, who are you and, and what are you doing? Um, and so kind of took me out. We had coffee, um, sort of talked through some of it. And he was like, okay, well, let's, let's see how you finish up the year and then let's chat. Um, and, you know, after that year, he, um, gave me a promotion to a director of development role. Um, basically was like, let's give you some, some better prospects and see if, you know, this thing can continue to work. Um, you know, and it, it did. And, you know, I, I remember I, I went to him once and I, you know, scared of my mind and never really asked for anything at, at work and, you know, sort of pitched the idea of like, look, I think we can scale this. I think centralized gift officers rather than putting people in the units is the right move here based on what our prospect base and our pipeline looks like. And um, he's like, we'll give it a shot. He gave me two people, um, you know, by the time I left OU, um, you know, that it scaled pretty largely. And we, we had a lot of success using some different regional models and, um, you know, a really important lesson for me from JR, right. And that, he didn't have to listen to me. I was nobody in that organization and it made sense to him. He's like, well, let's try it. If it doesn't work, we won't do it anymore. Um, but he really empowered people to try different stuff, to bring ideas to the table. Um, and I, I just think that's awesome. Right. I, I, I've done, tried to do that every place I go. Very few people actually take me up on it. Um, but that's the number one piece of advice that I always give people when they ask, right. Which is, you know, Think of something different, pitch it, try to be agile, um, but don't don't be afraid to try something new and you know, talk to your supervisor about it. I love that. I mean, what a great uh, boost of confidence that must have given you as well that he gave you a chance to sort of take a risk, but really a pragmatic risk. It wasn't a total flyer. It was rooted in your experience and some of the data, I'm sure. I am curious to know what you think what were the metrics that stood out that would have caused him to swing by your office that day and say, who are, who are you? I mean, what was the, the before and after that he saw in some report that sparked that reaction? Uh, it was probably dollars um, would be my guess. I, and it's, it's, I've slept since then, but um, I remember I closed sort of my first six months of $500,000 gift from somebody 
Um, you know, it's a story as old as time, right? This guy had been giving $1,000 a year for 30 years or whatever it was. And, you know, went and visited with him, thought I was going to talk about our honors program because, you know, and he kind of said to me, he's like, look, I've been getting honors college solicitations and I always give because that's, you know, it must be what you all need. But I care about the English department. I did my PhD in English there too. You know, we, we talked about it and, you know, a couple of visits later, he was doing a $500,000 graduate fellowship named after his graduate advisor that, you know, made a huge impact on him. And again, a great lesson and, you know, listen to the donor, you know, asking those probing questions, being responsive. Um, and we talked, I remember talking through that first gift with him. Um, and so he must've seen something in it. You know, what you just highlighted on one hand, it's just kind of got to drive you crazy because how many guys like that are there? How many gals like that are there hanging out in the middle of the giving pyramid that just go undiscovered? And what I love about the story that you just shared is that it really is first rooted in the data and letting the data then inform how you're prioritizing the relationship building. But without the human to human engagement, that gift doesn't happen. And that's where I feel like in a time of bots and AI and machine learning and all of that, which is super important. We're obviously banking a lot on it at Evertrue. But if you can't leverage all of that work to connect two human beings in what is this ultimately, the ultimate discretionary spending that is philanthropy, there's no way that we could have machine learning modeled that guy to $500,000 without that human to human interaction. And I think it's that connection point uh, that I get so excited about because maybe all the data and the software and the technology can reduce the odds that guys like that go undiscovered in concert with embracing virtual visits and a lot of the things that we talk a lot about that would allow you to get deeper into the giving pyramid sooner at a pace that you could never achieve in an off offline sort of physical visit world. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you completely, right? I mean, people talk a lot about the art and science of development, but I mean, it's not rocket science and nobody's asking you to paint the Sistine Chapel, right? It's just, you know, you got to do the right things to get in the room or on the screen. And then from there, you just have to, you know, exercise, you know, listening and, you know, those right. fundraising muscles to, to land the plane. So. And look, if you're listening to this and when you hear words like linear regression, you start getting nervous or your heart starts beating fast, <laughs> Google it, watch a YouTube video. This Anybody can learn to do this. No offense, Jay, but you can learn to do it in Excel in a few minutes. And there might be ways that you right now could improve your approach to reactivation of lapsed donors, your approach to that next acquisition campaign, your approach to giving day in a simple Excel formula that, uh, that you can learn. And, uh, and, and it's really neat that you were able to apply the MBA. And I did just wanna talk briefly about your experience um, uh, pursuing the MBA in concert with your, uh, your day job uh, as a frontline officer at Ohio University. There aren't a lot of folks in the sector that have gone on to pursue the MBA, and I am curious um, if there are other aspects of that program that shaped your approach to work that might have uh, helped you achieve uh, what you've achieved at this point in your career. Yeah, you know, I, I, it's interesting. Um, 
yeah, I had a great experience in, in my undergrad um, from the perspective of getting to be a student leader, getting to really work on myself and sort of those some of those competencies. But I was not a great undergraduate student by any means. And, you know, when I got into the, the graduate program at Bowling Green, you know, I really appreciated it. It was, you know, something I chose to do for myself, um, really invested in it. And, you know, I felt the same way about the MBA. There were parts of it where I'm like, this probably isn't really applicable to higher education, but it's, you know, as much a, a way of thinking. And um, that's something that I've tried to continue carrying on, right? I really enjoy sort of reading about, you know, concepts outside of higher ed and thinking about, you know, is this something that's applicable to the work that we do? Um, and a lot of it stems from sort of that first early experience of taking something from the classroom and applying it to the work that I was doing. Love that. So you ultimately had the opportunity to join Amy Noah at Purdue uh, to help with the Ever True campaign. And uh, tell me a little bit about the highlights at West Lafayette. And what I'm seeing is a recurring theme that you stay pretty busy because on top of the job there, you said you were a football coach. You've got a side hustle in every single uh, role that you've held here. So tell me about what led to, uh, to that coaching experience, which is actually one of my, uh, one of my long-term goals. Yeah. So, um, you know, it was such an interesting opportunity to join Purdue um, at that time. So several years earlier, um, you know, I actually talked with JR, I think, you know, hey, it might be time for me to sort of look somewhere else. You know, my wife is done with school, you know, we're done with the campaign at, you know, at Ohio. Um, and I actually have been in a search at Purdue. Um, it just wasn't a good fit. Um, but I'd stayed in touch um, with, with a guy named David Lasseter, who's now the, the president and CEO of the um, Lafayette Community Foundation. But um, and when the AVP job opened up, he, he, you know, he sent me a note and was like, hey, don't know, you know where you're at, but you should look at this. Um, so, you know, again, right, making those connections, staying in touch. Um, but when interviewed at West Lafayette um, and, you know, it's funny, I hope Amy doesn't mind me telling this story, but um, she called me on a Friday afternoon after I interviewed. It was, you know, one of those timings where you're like, oh, I didn't get this job. Um, and she said, hey, what are you what are you doing for the holiday weekend? I said, you mean like the holiday on Monday? She was like, yeah. I said, oh, I, you know, I'm going to barbecue with some friends. And all that. She goes, well, here's the thing. I, I, I want to come out and visit with you. Um, and so she got in her car um, on Friday afternoon, um, drove from West Lafayette to Athens, Ohio. Um, her and her husband had breakfast with me and my wife. We walked around campus. We just talked. And um, I remember being like, this is kind of strange, you know, that she, and I found out later that, you know, her and her husband went out to dinner the night before and they were asking about me. It's a small town and, um, you know, but she, and, you know, ultimately hired me. Um, and I remember she, you know, she told me pretty early on and you've, you've talked to Amy, so this isn't anything new, but basically like, she just looked me dead in the eye and was like, look, I took a big chance on you. You're young for this role, you know, don't F it up. Um, <laughs> You know, and that's not exactly what that's, said, uh, but it was, it was pretty close. Um, I think that's challenge and support. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And look, I, Amy is one of the finest managers and people, I've, you know, there's not a lot of people that care about her folks the way she does, um, but expectations are always clear. Um, and, you know, you, you better meet them. And it was, you know, a great experience for me. I, you know, had a really big team, um, got the opportunity to do a bunch of things that I hadn't necessarily done before. 
um, in a really big institution, um, which was a really interesting, you know, learning opportunity and um, a really large R1, which I hadn't worked at before. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite memories on our entrepreneurial journey and really a milestone was when Amy and team invited me to present at the Big Ten Development Conference, which Purdue hosted. And it was such an exciting moment and just so neat to see truly how collaborative and connected. I mean, this is a collaborative sector, but to see the way that the Big Ten peers really work together was was amazing. I mean, they were they were friends, they were colleagues, they were mentors. I mean, it was it was really, really eye-opening to see that level of connectivity. It it was. It's it's super collegial. And and I'll say too, right, the the environment at Purdue, you know, we talked before about, you know, wanting to have this culture where everyone feels like they're part of advancement. Amy did such a good job of, of creating that, right? I mean, you know, we would, is the, the, that example I shared with Purdue, right? It was always, what's your idea? How can we do it? Let's try it. Let's pivot. You know, it was, we were always trying new things. She was so interested in scaling. Employee recognition was super important to her. You know, at one point I came to her with a, a plan for talent management and, you know, we ended up hiring a full-time staff member, you know, creating this curriculum. I mean, she, if she felt like something was going to work, she wasn't afraid to invest both time, energy, money. Um, and she really wanted her folks to feel like they were part of something bigger than themselves there. Very cool. One of my favorite stories ever shared on the podcast is when Amy told me, about a unique gift when a guy showed up with horses in a trailer in front of the Purdue Research Foundation, wanting to, I guess, drop off these horses. Um, So I won't forget that one, but I have to ask you, if you had any other interesting gift experiences, unique gifts, it's hard to top that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I I loved our, our, I used to say doctors and lawyers are the biggest BS detectors in the world, but um, you know, you go and, and you meet with an agriculture donor and, you know, they know their stuff. And I've learned and forgotten more about corn and soybean than I ever thought I would. Um, you know, I'd say the most interesting gift that I've ever done. I was working, this was at OU, um, was working at a, um, with a couple in Albuquerque, New Mexico. They were doing a gift in kind to the Kennedy Art Museum. And they really wanted me, um, I'm trying to remember the artist at this point. It was, oh, it was a, a Joan Miro sketch. Um, they really wanted me to take it back to the museum. And I just trying to explain to them like, you know, this has to be appraised. It's really not appropriate for me to take it with me. And I actually was, was going to drive back to um, Santa Fe and meet the university plane and go with our president at the time um, and meet him in Denver. And so they were insistent. I, against my better judgment, I took the sketch, right? And um, it was funny because the FBO in Denver only had a Mercedes as the last, like the last rental car. And I picked the present up the next morning. It's like, I'm not really comfortable driving, you know, a Mercedes to donor meetings. I'm like, well, if it makes you feel any better, I've got a hundred thousand dollar painting in the trunk. So Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Just uh, throw it in the briefcase and uh, yes, yeah, ship it back to the museum. Yeah. I love it. Um, okay. So let's talk about Georgia state getting the opportunity to truly um, step up into the, the leadership role for the first time in your career. Um, unique time, mid-pandemic. Not sure if you were aware of that, given the timing of, of accepting the role. You can walk us through that. Um, but help set a little bit of context, which you've already touched on, just for um, the really special place that Georgia State uh, uh, occupies in the higher ed landscape and 
um, what you're excited about from an advancement perspective? Yeah, you know, I, I think when it's when you start the job search, it's always sort of challenging, right? And I was in two searches, um, you know, one where I ultimately decided that it wasn't a good fit for me and one where they decided I wasn't a good fit for them, right? And that's, you know, that's okay. And, but I remember talking to the search firm and just saying, you know, I don't really want to just rinse and repeat my experience at Purdue. I, you know, I want to do something, you know, unique and, you know, find a really great fit. Um, and, you know, they were like, you know, you need to talk to Mark Becker at Georgia State. Um, and I, to be honest, had never really heard of Georgia State um, before and started reading like, oh, my God, this place is unbelievable. It's the largest institution in the state of Georgia. It's grown so fast. It's a research one. The student success message, uh, the diverse student body. I mean, we basically are downtown Atlanta in a lot of ways. Um, really neat urban campus in a major city, which was a nice change of pace from West Lafayette, right? And um, you know, did a you know did the screening, did the airport interview, um, was scheduled to do the you know the couple of days on campus, and then you know got the call on March 13th from the search firm. Hey, you know the whole world shutting down. We don't know what this process is going to look like. Um, ended up doing the final interviews via Zoom, um, and it was hard for me. Kind of you know, can I move? You know you know, my wife and, and, and me in the middle of this without really spending a lot of time on campus. And, you know, I just couldn't shake the feeling I had from talking with Mark in that airport interview, um, that he was going to be a great partner, uh, and that Georgia State was the right place for me. And so, you know, made a leap of faith and, you know, couldn't be happier that I did. Um, didn't expect that President Becker was going to announce that he was leaving um, after a few months, but um, you know, we've, we've had the presidential, presidential transition and I don't think we've missed a, a beat with President Blake. So. I love it. Um, it's a total coincidence, but we've had, we've been over indexed with Georgia state alumni at Evertrue. I don't know if my colleagues have mentioned that to you, but we've got roughly 6% of our staff attended Georgia state. And, uh, and we've got, uh, folks in sales and some of our program management, uh, one of our software engineers, but I've also noticed just kind of anecdotally, there, there are a fair amount of Georgia State alumni in the advancement world. I don't know if you've connected with them, but I think of Ben Tompkins, who's been over at Emory, uh, uh, Susan Boyette, who runs central development at uh, University of Mississippi comes to mind, uh, Christine Reardon, who's the president at Adelphi, Aaron Thomas Lewis, who's at the University of Iowa Center for Advancement. I mean, there's a strong, strong network um, within the sector. Yeah, I, I think it's a lot of it is the experience that students have at Georgia State. Um, you know, I have an unbelievable amount of donor meetings where I just get in the car and I just am blown away by the impact and experience and higher ed can have on somebody's life. I mean, you know, there's almost two Georgia States. I mean, there's the Georgia State that's, you know, that it is now and has been sort of for 10, 15 years where we've had a residential experience for students. We still have a lot of commuters, but it, it's more of a, it's becoming more of a traditional undergraduate experience at least, but people that graduated 20, 30 years ago, those folks that really are our major gift donors, right? Most of them went at night, part-time, they were working, they had young families and Georgia State gave them this opportunity that they just weren't gonna get anywhere else. I mean, I, I had a, a breakfast with someone a few weeks ago, right? First generation American, first generation college student, um, you know, was working as a bank teller and going to class in between shifts. And he's super successful in real estate finance now. 
and you know credits a lot of that to to Georgia State for giving him a chance and it's a story here every day it's super energizing um and again you know you think about you know I think about my student affairs background and it's sort of this perfect confluence of you know what you cared about and why you made that initial decision to get into that role to you know really be able to impact students in a different way through fundraising I love it and uh one of the really neat things about Georgia State is if you Google or if you look up strategic.gsu.edu, you can see this strategic plan that um, is just very crystal clear and student success has gotten a lot of attention. There's, there's other ones as well, but um, you know, being able to improve graduation rates while uh, seeing an 80% increase in the number of Pell eligible students that have been enrolled is pretty remarkable. And it must make it, as a fundraiser at Georgia State, you must feel a high level of confidence that the product that you're selling, if I can call it that, that the mission you're selling is a winning mission. And, mm-hmm. you know, what is it like to sort of, in the spirit of challenge and support, I mean, being able to challenge the donors uh, and have that sort of evidence where you're not you're not making the ask from a position of weakness or a position of even uh, maintenance, but really from a position of growth in a sector that, uh, you know, hasn't had a lot of stories like that in recent years. Yeah. You know, I think it's interesting. I, I used to talk about, you know, I I think I can fundraise anywhere. Right. Um, But I'll tell you when you really believe in the mission and get energized by it, but the work is a lot easier. I remember, uh, so Tim Rennick is, you know, the director of our new National Institute for Student Success, where we're helping other institutions learn, you know, the lessons and use the tools that we use to, to do that here. Um, but the first time I heard Tim Rennick talk, I mean, I was ready to take out my checkbook, right? And um, my wife and I endowed a, a student success scholarship here because we, we believe in it, right? And so I think that makes it easy but, you know, and while we are at a position of strength, we also, our endowment is, is not, is pretty small for an institution of our size and scale, especially given the unmet need that our students have. Um, our endowment dollars per student is something I look at about, look at and talk about a lot. It's, it's pretty low compared to other large urban um, universities. And then I think there's, we have so much opportunity beyond student success here, right? I mean, we are you know, an R1, yes, we, you know, we're in the, you know, Georgia State, Georgia Tech's backyard, but, you know, from a perspective of research, life sciences, computer science, we're super strong. I mean, we've got one of the only BSL-4 labs in the entire country on an, in an academic setting, right? Um, that Merck drug, um, the little red pill you saw everywhere, you know, we were one of eight institutions that did the clinical testing on that. Um, you know, there's a lot of hidden gems outside of student success at Georgia State, too. Love it. And so you've recently gone through a presidential uh, transition. You've welcomed Dr. Brian Blake to uh, the team. Tell me about where you're at here in the fall of 2021 with new leadership, with sort of the you know next chapter of growth here in addition to student success, but also more broadly. Um, and what does that mean for advancement? I know that you're hiring right now. We've got a lot of folks that uh, are listening to this and and what what should they know about the opportunity at Georgia State in general and within advancement specifically? Yeah, I, th- I think the you know the big message is we're we're growing right. Um, you know we had a record year last year. We're we're on that pace again this year. 
Um, we're trying to be innovative. We've reallocated a lot of staffing dollars to increase ROI across the organization. And you know, we're, we're finishing up our internal readiness study um, to get ready to launch our next capital campaign. Um, President Blake has some really big visions for the institution um, you know, around um, you know, as much as you can know about an institution in the first three, four months, um, he's making quick work of it. I, I think Brian and I have spent more time together than I have with my own wife in the last few months. But, um, you know, we're growing, we're going to continue to raise more money. And the mission of this institution is one, um, you know, that's really important. And if you care about student success, you know, large research enterprise, um, you know, economic development. I mean, the foundation owns 64 acres down, downtown that we're developing in, part, in partnership with, uh, with Carter. I mean, it's, it's a growing and thriving and quickly evolving institution uh, with really big goals. Tell us about your hiring plans and advancement. Yeah, so um, waiting on this internal readiness study, I, you know, I, I have a pretty good idea of what it's going to say. Um, you know, we need major gift officers, but we also need, um, you know, what I would call strategic support staff, whether that's, you know, um, um, prospect uh, development folks, administrative support, um, you know, people in the foundation, you know, if you look at our benchmarks for every frontline fundraiser, we have 0.1 strategic support uh, folks. Um, if you look at our benchmarking, we're understaffed by a magnitude of five to meet our lowest performing peer. Um, so, you know, we need to grow across the entire organization and um, we're really committed to professionalizing the place and, you know, growing and making this a place where people can see a, a career and advancement, not just coming up with a job through some of that talent development stuff we were talking about earlier. I love it, Jay. I think you've um, done a very good job articulating, one, the importance of mentorship and how that's accelerated your career and your success, but also how uh, committed you are to paying it forward and building a culture where others can thrive and flourish. And I would encourage everybody, you know, here to uh, look up Jay, connect with him on LinkedIn, mention that you heard him on the podcast here. Uh, definitely somebody that um, you should have uh, in, in your network. And so uh, I know we're on time here, Jay, but I just want to uh, wish you the, the absolute best. Any closing thoughts before we, uh, before we wrap up and then I'll, no, I'll I, I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed talking to, to your folks at, at Evertrue and look forward to continuing our partnership and, and really appreciate the, the conversation today. Good stuff, Jay. Thank you, everybody. Hope you all are gearing up for uh, a great close to the year. When this episode uh, is published, it'll either be very late 20, uh, 21 or, or maybe even early 22, but uh, I wish everybody the best. And with that, I'm going to conclude today's episode with Jay Khan, the Vice President of Advancement and Foundation President at Georgia State University. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Brian. Talk to you soon.